2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hello, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Uh, you guys have a podcaster and writer on the show. Double threat. Shoot. Hillary Frank. Hey. The uh, creator of the Longest Shortest Time podcast, and she also has a book out now. It's called Weird Parenting Wins. Uh, Hillary has like an interesting like place in the podcasting arc of time. She started... Longest Shortest Time as like a calling card to try and get a job in radio. And now it is a show that is listened to by like many, 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 many thousands of people. Uh, and it is its own empire and she does not host it anymore. She runs it and it's become this whole business. Uh, and as podcasting has grown, the show has grown. And we talked about the whole like arc of her career and audio and all that good stuff. Fun. Very popular podcast. Very popular podcast and deservedly so. Just like us, except we still do this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah when, when does this turn into a business that we no longer host and merely oversee? You didn't host it all year last year. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> wow. wow. It's gotten too real here. It's gotten too real. Guys, put put the gloves back on. <laughs> <laughs> too real is exactly what the longest, shortest time is all about. So talking about the stuff that uh, people don't always talk about. If you're ready to talk about the things that no one wants to talk about, do it in an email newsletter. People can't escape you with the email newsletter. They have to check their email eventually, even if they don't check their uh, mailbox or checking their email box. Uh, start it with MailChimp. They make it really easy and they integrate with everything from WordPress blogs to Squarespace, pretty much any service that ever is going to advertise on here, if it has the possibility of a, uh, a mailing list integration, uh, MailChimp already has it covered. So future-proof your mailing list with MailChimp. And now here's Max with Hillary Frank. Well, hey, Hillary. How hey, are Max. you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Yes. I think good I am. You think good you are? I think good I am. I, I yeah, That should give you some indication. I've not done a lot of um, sleeping. Yeah. Recently. What's your excuse? Uh, well, <clears throat> relevant to our topic here, I have a tiny baby at home who has decided to stop sleeping a little bit. So that's part of it. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm also tired, <laughs> but I do not have a little baby at home. I have a person who just turned nine yesterday. Hey. Yeah. Um, and I was just doing a lot of traveling. And What are nine-year-olds like? Nine-year-olds are awesome. Yeah? They can have like very adult-like conversations with you. This is the age where it's starting to happen. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we go on... Um, my daughter and I go for breakfast on Sunday mornings, and I let her choose what breakfast place we go to, and I'll like sit across the table from a person who ordered a Mickey Mouse pancake, and we just like we talk about everything. We talk about life and death and 
why people get bloody noses and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but you are tired because you you've been uh, you've been book torn. I have been. You've been book torn hard. Yeah, I have been. It's been a lot in a short amount of time. I feel like there's some longest shortest time joke here, and I'm not going to be able. I to know. Make I'm it. always pulling them out. <laughs> uh, have you enjoyed it? I have. Yeah, I've been meeting lots of cool people and going places that. I don't always get to go. I was just in um, the California sunshine. Yeah, it's much better there. And I was out there in a t-shirt. But you like going around and uh, and being the focus of attention? I don't like being the focus of attention. I don't at all. Really? <laughs> yeah. I like making things a lot. And I like making things that people like to consume. And I don't love being the focus of attention. I would much rather be interviewing other people. And yet you're doing this tour. And yet I'm doing this tour. Do you feel like you have to? Is that just part of the like book? I like, do feel, uh, I, I feel like it would be a mistake if I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that seems right. Yeah. It would probably be a mistake if you didn't. Yeah. Uh, I did kind of strangely enjoy going on the morning news in LA. Oh yeah. You went on KTLA, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had never been on TV like that before. Why, why did you like it? Well, it's just such a scene. Like, you get there and it's like everyone's job who works there to make you feel comfortable, at least where I went. <laughs> That's a lot like here today, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, my husband is here <laughs> and greeted me and gave me water and asked me if I wanted snacks. And then you did the same thing. <laughs> so it's similar. Yeah. We're like KTLA. Yeah. But then, and they like touch up your makeup. And then, like, I was warned who <laughs> there were four anchors, and I was warned which one of them was going to be the wild card. Oh, and yeah. He was. What did he do? So, you know, I was talking about strategies from the book, and I talked about this one where um, to get kids to eat vegetables, this one mom takes a Pez dispenser, takes out all the Pez, and fills it back up with frozen peas. And the kid, like, pops them out and eats the frozen peas like they're candy. And the guy was like, wait a second, I have a question about that. Isn't a child going to, like, break their teeth or choke on a frozen pea? And I was like, no, <laughs> it's going to melt. <laughs> I was hoping that we could start with this op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times. Yeah. Would you mind quickly just giving the gist of that thing? Yeah. So the title is The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers. And... What I wrote about is all the different ways that once I started doing work about parenthood, people were telling me that my work was small, that I sounded like a little girl, I even was sexually harassed, all these things that I think at the time that they happened, I thought, oh, that's weird, or like, that guy's a jerk. And I didn't put it all together as misogyny against mothers until I looked at it as a whole. But it, it was this pattern of stuff that like, I did not experience before I was doing work about motherhood. Was there some moment where those pieces formed something larger? Like, was there a moment where you realized it? I think maybe the sexual harassment thing, where I was like, oh, wow, that, that was really aggressive and horrible. And I thought about a bunch of stuff that had happened before that. And I was going on a rant to my friend, our colleague, PJ Vote, And I was like, this happened and this happened and this happened and it's all misogyny. 
against me just because I do work about mothers. And he was like, that's an op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I couldn't. I couldn't write that, though, because I'll never work again. You know, nobody will hire me again because they'll be afraid that I'm going to, you know, call them out. Or I will have offended people who will recognize themselves. I didn't name anybody in the article, but there are people who could recognize themselves. And I was like, these people are all really powerful people in our business, and I just can't write this. But the more I thought about it, the more I really clearly knew what it was going to say. And I felt like it was just going to flow out of me. And yeah. I decided to just start writing it down. And it was a year before I pitched it to the New York Times. You like had the thing done for a year? I had a draft of it. What was the, I mean, maybe it was just that you had a book coming out that pushed you over the edge, but like, what got you to finally pitch it? I think that was it. I, you know, I was talking to my publicist and she was like, we want to have you write a bunch of op-eds as part of book promotion. And I was like, well, cool. I have this one <laughs> that's basically done that I've been sitting on and I don't know. And she was like, yes. Yeah. I know exactly um, the editor to pitch this to. And so she sent it to her and she pretty quickly got back and said, yeah, I want to run a version of this. Did she edit it a lot? She cut it down a lot, but the, the gist of it was the same. What did it feel like before, you know, in the days before it came out, if you had been that nervous about calling people out that way? I guess there are a couple of things. I, I did get to a place where I thought, I've gotten far enough in my career that I don't think I can screw things up for myself by publishing this. I think I have like a solid foundation. The people that I work with closely were really supportive of me publishing this and like really proud of it being out there. But I was really nervous leading up to it. It published like right at the end of 2018. And it just felt really symbolic of like this new stage in my work life, like that I was going to come out and like call all these people out. <laughs> it felt really scary. Is that not like uh, how you think of yourself normally? Are you not like a confrontational person? I'm not confrontational, but I do think I take really big risks in my work always. Mm -hmm. And so this just felt like another step in that direction. That's how it felt to me too. I mean, I feel like the show has this whole history of like trying to name the uncomfortable thing and try and talk about the uncomfortable thing. Let, let, I just want to stay on that piece for a second though. Mm -hmm. And do you have a theory about why motherhood in particular provokes this reaction from people and particularly like people in the media? Well, I think motherhood is not valued in our culture. You know, like we don't value the work of mothers both at home and then at work. Like mothers, I've reported on this, mothers are the most discriminated against people at work. They're discriminated against more than fathers and people without children. What does that discrimination look like? Right. So mothers are promoted less, hired less, and paid less. And people are forced out of their jobs after they announce that they're pregnant, they're passed over for promotions, and they get, you know, horrible discriminatory comments like, oh, don't you really think you want to be at home? Do you really want to come back? And then, you know, American work culture is not set up for people to be parents. And mothers often wind up taking on the brunt of, 
you know, the work at home, the um, mental work of just holding in your head all the things that your kid needs to do, scheduling all of their activities and doctor's appointments. This generally falls on the backs of mothers. And then dads are congratulated and rewarded for being like, quote unquote, good fathers by showing up for, you know, the ballet recital. (laughs) So there's a real double standard. And I guess that's the part we didn't talk about with the New York Times piece, too, was the, the double standard in talking about like sexual dysfunction on NPR. Yeah, so the, you get into the stats basically, but you were trying to pitch, you had pitched some stories to NPR about sort of like significant birth-related injuries. Mm-hmm. And they basically said like, it's not a big enough story. Well, so I was, what I wanted to do was a story about the cost of getting your sex life back after having a birth injury. So you know, pelvic floor physical therapy is a remedy for most birth injuries, but a lot of insurance doesn't cover it. And so I wanted to investigate why it is that a lot of doctors don't recommend it, don't even seem to know about it. And then once you do know about it, is it um, a class issue? Like, can you only get it if you can afford it? And then does that mean getting your sex life back is a class issue? I had a lot of questions, but I was told... It's a good um, story. (laughs) I thought so. (laughs) I was told you can't talk about sex on the radio, even on the weekend. And then, like, it didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know why. And then later on, I went and looked up Viagra on the NPR website. And, like, all of these radio stories and articles came up. Yeah, it's funny, uh, the list in the op-ed, too. It's not just, like, little business stories about, like, Pfizer or whatever. <laughs> but it's just, like, there's literally, there's, like, 16 years of Viagra. Like, yeah. Where are we now? And you you can't talk about Viagra without using the phrase erectile dysfunction. Right. And it gets a little bit explicit in some of these stories. You know, they talk about, like, erections. What was the reaction to the piece? There was an outpouring of support and people saying like, thank God you're saying this. There were other reporters who work on the parenting beat who say like, yes, I'm in the motherhood ghetto. Like people don't take me seriously anymore now that I'm reporting on motherhood. There were like young women in media who were reaching out to me who don't have kids who were saying like, thank you for talking about this because I think they felt like it was paving the way for them. And I even, there was a lot of support from men too, saying like, well, thank you for like opening my eyes to this stuff. Must felt pretty good. It did. It felt really good. It was a relief. Did you hear from any of the people who you had like anonymized in the story and called out? I heard from one. And it was the only woman who could have recognized themselves. Yeah. And she wrote to me immediately and said, I'm so glad you wrote this. This was a person from NPR who said we can't talk about sex on the radio, um, which was a message she had passed along to me from one of her higher ups. I think she wanted to put it on the radio. And she said, I'm just so glad that you published this and hopefully it'll move the needle. People are listening. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second and tell you about a sponsor. And this particular sponsor is a way uh, for you to improve yourself. It's the Great Courses Plus. 
The Great Courses Plus is a online wonderland of learning. It's a streaming service and you get unlimited access to thousands of lectures from the most engaging, passionate experts on virtually any topic you can think of. Writing creative nonfiction, forensic history, cognitive behavioral therapy, travel photography, more. There are all kinds of lectures on here. But here's the thing. You can indulge your curiosity. You can learn. You can basically like go back to school or go to school, except there's no tests. There's no exams. There's no homework. There's no like to-dos. You're not going to have just another thing on your list after you listen to a lecture. You're just going to have learned. You're simply going to have indulged your own curiosity. That's what the Great Courses Plus offers. They've got all these courses. Uh, one that I think you could definitely check out, Life Lessons from the Great Books. It's like a exploration into um, the great books. Some of the greatest masterpieces ever written. Again, these lectures are like half an hour. They're delivered by experts. Go check it out. I think you're going to love it. If you're a curious person, the Great Courses Plus is exactly what you're looking for. And today, you can get a special limited time offer. Enjoy a full month of unlimited access for free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Start your free month today. Now let's get back to the show. So... You have made this show about parenting for how many years now? For eight years. Uh, which has worked. Mm -hmm. It turns out there is like an audience for this. That's the part of this too that's like, clearly this is a good business. Oh yeah, it like, is. <laughs> parenting media, a strong business. Yeah. Advertisers really like parenting content, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is a, a feeling I had and it has proven to be true. Um, you know, getting back to your question about why we think this, I think there's also a thing in media where what I'm doing is serious journalism and storytelling about parenthood. And there are a lot of other people doing that as well. But there's also like in the early days of the internet, there were, I guess, what you would call mommy blogs, which I think is also like a dismissive term. You think? And, yeah, right. <laughs> and is not what mommy bloggers would want to be called. <laughs> I think they would just want to be called bloggers. But a lot of the people who started in those early days were not professionals and they were doing their own like cool thing, but it was more like like journal writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that maybe that's part of what people are thinking when they hear like, oh, you do work about motherhood. I also think that for a long time, all you could find on the internet as far as parenting media was like really divisive, was designed to be divisive and, and make parents engage in what is also called, you know, the mommy wars, which is also like a dismissive term um, where you're supposed to choose one side or another of an issue and fight it out, you know, of like how you feed your kid, how you get them to sleep. And that's also not what I do. <laughs> so I think there are these like stereotypes that people have in their head of what parenting media is. When you started the show, were there were there models of the kind of serious reporting that you wanted to be doing out there? No, except that I got my start at This American Life. And what I wanted to do was tell stories, This American Lifestyle, but just all about family. And there are plenty of stories on This American Life about family. So that was my model. Mm -hmm. 
tell me a little bit about the origins of of your show. Uh, I listened to the first episode today. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It sounds like from a really different era. Yeah, it sounds like from a different moment, and I wonder if you can go back there for a second and try and uh, help me understand where you were at. Yeah, I mean, so we should also just talk about where podcasting was at, yeah. which is like not very far. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you could make a living making a podcast was laughable. Like, but I, when I started the show, had had my kid like 10 months earlier and I had a really rough childbirth and recovery and moved to a town where I knew nobody four months after that and was feeling really lonely and just really wanted to talk to other people about like the truth of early motherhood but it's really hard to go up to a stranger and just try to get into like a deep conversation <laughs> about birth injuries you know so I knew that, you know, if you have a microphone, you kind of have license to ask people anything and people are more willing to open up to you usually. Mm -hmm. So I just started interviewing people, some people I knew and then others that I didn't because I said on the show, if you have a story that you want to tell me about a struggle in parenthood, you know, hit me up. And I started immediately hearing from strangers. And the cool thing was I started the show really to like help myself. It really, it was just like a selfish thing to be like, I need to feel better. And pretty quickly I found that it was helping other people to feel less alone too. I'm interested in that moment because I, I feel like um, with podcasting certainly, but writing as well, like the tools are there to start these projects now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you can tell really quickly whether they were born out of some really genuine like need or passion or whether um, the person thought it was like a good business opportunity, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that like doing something because it's a good business opportunity is, is inherently bad or anything. But um, when you started, it's interesting because I feel like that first episode that I listened to this morning like was somewhere a little bit in between those two things. Mm -hmm. It's how it felt to me. Like it was very clearly like you were have in a moment and trying to kind of process it out loud. Mm -hmm. And also you were a professional radio journalist. Mm -hmm. And so it was good. Mm -hmm. Like like what you were making was was good and like thoughtful mm -hmm. and like clearly like edited. Like the show's like well mixed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like um uh it's like pretty tight. Mm -hmm. You know? And it just felt to me like it was slightly in between those things. But what was your ambition for the project then? My ambition was to get a full-time job as an editor on a public radio show because I had been a freelancer for like 11 years at that point in radio. And I wanted a more stable gig because I was a mom now. But I also knew that technology was changing and it is also hard to re-enter the workforce or get a full-time job for the very first time ever <laughs> after having a kid. And so I was making the show as like my calling card to say, yeah. I still have chops. Remember me? You know, see, I can keep up with podcasting. <laughs> and I didn't think that the show would ever become like my main gig. I did want to get episodes of it on the radio so that I could get more attention for the project. But that was sort of the extent of which I, I thought I would get 
people to hear it. Did that like hustle aspect of it come naturally to you or was that part hard? No, that comes very naturally to me. Um, Having been a freelancer for a long time, it's just constant hustle. How do you stay, like, how do you keep momentum up? I mean, I, I remember it coming out and there was some like juice around it, which I imagined is like pretty good fuel to keep going. But like you are on your own, you're making this show, Mm -hmm. you're living in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I assume you still don't know a ton of people. Yeah. You got like a little kid. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you keep the thing going? So I only put out episodes in those early days when I felt like it. Because I was, I was making money tutoring kids on their college essays. And so I just thought like, the reason I'm making this is a means to an end to get a job. And so I really want it to sound good. I don't want it to sound like I'm bored with it or forcing it. And so I just did it whenever I felt like it. But then when I saw Roman Mars do his Kickstarter, I was like, oh, wow, well, maybe you could just go rogue and (laughs) figure this out. And I didn't have as big of an audience as he did, but I had this feeling that I could raise money. This is where, like, the hustle comes in. Yeah. I knew that, like, I could only expect a certain amount of money from my audience, but I thought that I could probably get some corporate sponsorship. And so... I picked a handful of um, brands that I felt had supported me as a new mom, and I cold called them. I just, I thought, they're not going to read emails from me, but nobody answers their phone, so I'm not going to actually have to talk to anybody, but I'm going to just leave voicemails. Hmm. So I called all these companies and just called, like, the main number and asked to talk to the manager of marketing, and I would leave these voicemails and... I thought, you know, I'm selling my ability to tell a story and, like, my voice. (laughs) And so this voicemail is the perfect medium for me. So I'd give them my little pitch about what the show was, how I felt supported by their brand. Did you, like, have a script? Were you, like, how prepared were these voicemails? (laughs) I had bullet points. (laughs) I was, like, (laughs) ad-libbing. I had bullet points. Um, I told them that I was a This American Life contributor They all called me back. No shit. And they all said, well, we've never supported podcasting before, but this sounds like an exciting way to try it. Because the amounts I was asking for were big for me, but small for them. You know, Mm -hmm. I was getting like between two and $5,000 from each of them. And then I set it up like um, matching grants. And so whenever I hit like... $5,000 $5,000 from the audience, I'd get another 5000 from diapers.com. And it just kept, like, it would make it jump and it would make um, the momentum feel exciting. Oh, so you were like, if my audience gives me five grand, will you give me five grand? And yeah. And I signed up for that? Yeah. And then I could say to the audience, help me get, oh, we're so close. Help me get to five grand. <laughs> we have another five grand coming if you do that. And then we would, like, do the next, the next jump. That's so smart. Thank you. <laughs> it worked. I, they all called you back. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So you, you go out, you like uh, successfully sell ads via voicemail, which is a thing that I've never heard of before. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You got a uh, small but loyal, dedicated, and willing to pay audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you do a Kickstarter, 
raise some money, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden this thing can be your job. Yeah. And then what do you do? So as soon as I announced the Kickstarter, WMYC came knocking and said, we're sure this is going to be a successful campaign, and do you want to partner? And I gave it some time and eventually said yes. I liked the idea that it would allow me to hire somebody to help me. And I was at that time producing the podcast. Once I did the Kickstarter and it was successful, I started making the show every other week. Then I was on a schedule and I had to deliver and it was really hard to do completely by myself. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, even now you've got a couple people working on the show. You're not hosting it anymore. Right. But like, I, I just feel like you must be doing like 18 different jobs. It's a lot. Yeah. What are the parts of it that you don't like doing? <laughs> I mean, a lot. I I don't like doing social media. Because <laughs> um, you're not good at it or just it seems like a pain? It's a pain and I, I don't like being trolled. You know, I think it's really hard to do a project that started so personally without being trolled and it just gets in my head and I'd rather it gets in all of our heads yeah right because if you're a human it does (laughs) (laughs) and I just I like making the stuff and I like editing I like writing I like cutting tape but I don't so much like I like talking to you Max but (laughs) but like all of the trying to get hype you know the shilling yeah, yeah, it can be tiring. I like You seem good at the shilling though. <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean like there are few shows that I can think of that have the kind of like community around them that you do. It's interesting like I l- listened to a bunch of episodes before we talked and I listened to one that was like pretty early on like I don't know, right around 100, something like that. And there's like a minute or two at the top of the show where you were like we're having our like speed dating thing in Chicago on Friday. And then uh, like next week, come, I'll be at this bookstore and we'll all talk about this. Yeah. And it's like, I was just like, man, this seems like so much energy around the people. Yeah. I mean, we've cut back on things too. So I don't do those speed dating events anymore. It was too hard to be producing the show on a weekly basis and be traveling like that. Yeah. And I tried to see if I could outsource it for a while, and it just seemed like that was also too much work. Do you like being a boss? I do like being a boss. What do you like about it? (laughs) I like having a vision, and I like having people be excited about that. And I like collaborating with other people whose creativity I trust and then like making the final call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also, I just like being a mentor too. You know, I sometimes get asked like, how can we get more women involved in podcasting? I mean, there are more and more now, but when we started out in podcasting, I was one of the only ones. And I just do it by hiring women and mentoring them. Are you good at having hard conversations with the people who work for you? I don't enjoy it, but I think I have become good at it. (laughs) What does being good at it mean? Being direct. (laughs) We're just going to let that sit there. (laughs) Uh, That's a good example of being direct. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, trying not to wait too long to have them. Yeah. Um, But there's a reason I was asking. Yeah. The reason I was asking is because I feel like 
the other thing that the longest shortest time does so well that you do so well in that show is I feel like I feel like you're having hard conversations on there a lot mm-hmm. at least talking about things that people don't talk about and I associate that with difficulty but I guess I'm not even sure that you feel that way like there are topics that are not addressed elsewhere that you guys talk about on the show and mm-hmm. have from the start do those things feel inherently hard to talk about to you they don't feel hard to talk about to me it feels hard to talk about having done the work afterwards. But when I'm interviewing somebody or like delivering a monologue about something that I wrote, that comes pretty easily to me. I don't do well with small talk. I do really well connecting with other people really deeply. Like I was just, you know, traveling in California to promote the book. And one of the things I had to do was go to this giant conference, the biggest conference for professional women in the country, possibly the world. And there were 7,000 women there. And I find it incredibly intimidating to walk into a room full of strangers and have to just pick who I'm going to talk to. And then it's just the way that I talk on the show is the way that I like to talk to people in real life. But most people will not allow you to do that with them. (laughs) Well, I've I've had that experience too. I feel like um, these microphones really let you like uh, just ask things that in, in normal human social situations are not okay. Yeah, totally. A, a place where I often actually fuck it up is um, like kids' birthday parties. Oh, <laughs> because like I don't know these parents of my kids' friends, but I also don't know how to make small talk, and so I just end up asking like very intimate and personal <laughs> questions at like ten o'clock over bagels, and people yeah. are like, "I don't know you, man." I don't, yeah. I don't want to talk about that right now. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean necessarily, I mean, I guess that you were answering that, but it's not just the the conversations, but it's the topics. Like mm-hmm. you were asking people about things that not only do most people never talk about on the radio, but most people don't talk about. Yeah. And I wonder whether those conversations are hard to have or maybe what you're saying like they're just not for except you. I think that people are dying to talk about these things and they're yeah maybe you're not going to talk about it over bagels with a stranger <laughs> at a kid's birthday party but I think we're all kind of like dying for friends who will talk about this stuff with us and to hear stories of other people who have gone through similar things so I find when I interview people that they're very eager to talk about things that they don't get to in everyday life. And I don't find it hard to ask the questions most of the time. There are some things where I feel like I'm out of my element. Like when it comes to gender identity, I don't have a lot of experience with that. So I tell people, like, if I ask a question, if I use terminology that's not working for you, tell me. But I generally find that people want to answer the questions. How have you navigated what you reveal and don't reveal on the show? I try to reveal as little as possible about myself. When I do reveal stuff, I do it in a really like conscious way. For everything that I reveal, there's probably like 10 things I didn't. I think about what my limitations are before I go in and I think like, okay, I'm not going to mention these things that are too personal. And it's funny because people think I get so personal on the show, but I really talk 
about myself very little. And but when I do, I go deep. Um, and I at a certain point, I didn't want to talk about my daughter anymore. And I think it was when she started being aware that I was using her voice on the show. I would ask to record her sometimes and she had no problem with me recording her. And then she found out that I had recorded her and put it on the show and she was not happy. Really? Yeah. How old is she? This was a year ago when Andrea started hosting The Longest Shortest Time. I had recorded her asking would you rathers and they were really funny and I used them as a test for Andrea to like haze her, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and it was like, would you rather eat a skunk or poop in front of a thousand people? <laughs> See, it's yeah, great. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> but she thought, she was like, what? I thought you were just recording me for us. And so I I think I put her on after that, but she knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been really careful about it. Do you feel any tension between your chosen, like, repertorial profession and your desire to keep most of your personal life to yourself? No, I, I don't feel tension between that. I I feel like they're two different things, you know? Like, it's a beat that I have reported on a lot. But like I said, it's very rarely about myself. So I'm usually telling stories about other people, and I don't feel like that means I need to... I don't feel like having chosen to report on parenthood means that I need to share my own parenting life. But I also think there are certain people who um, think I owe them, that I owe the audience talking more about my personal life. And this is actually something I talked about in the New York Times piece. Also, there was a guy who interviewed me for his podcast, and he it's given me a hard time about not talking about why I had an only child. And I was like, well, that's not that's not something I want to talk about. And I shouldn't have to. And he was like, I guess it's just because, you know, you're one of the most prominent moms out there. And I was like, well, what I said in the piece was like, I wish I had said, no, I'm one of the most prominent podcasters. Right. Um, because I think people stop seeing you as a professional and just see you as a mom when you're talking about motherhood. Do you think that's happening for you less now? Nope. Um, I think I am better able to call people out on it now. <laughs> you just like slide them a copy of your op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I had I had this thing happen with the gist, and they I, I want to like preface it by saying they fixed it in exactly the way that they should have. But you know, I got interviewed. They posted the interview, and I was going to go share it. And then I looked and saw that the way they described me in the promo copy was professional mom Hillary Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wait, I can't, guys, I can't promote this. <laughs> it's it's like, <laughs> it's condescending, but also it's inaccurate. Like, nobody's a professional mom. This just isn't a thing. <laughs> and they said, well... If we're going to change it, we have to issue a a formal correction. And isn't that just going to call more attention to it? And I was like, well, (laughs) maybe we should. (laughs) And so they did the right thing and they changed it and they issued a correction. And it said something like, um, 
this post previously referred to Hillary Frank as a professional mom. She is an author. That's pretty good. Yeah. I feel like you need that, like, that sentence like framed somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that was written by a relatively young producer. And I feel like, you know, he learned from that. Maybe that staff learned from the mistake. And maybe because I corrected him, maybe fewer people will make that mistake. This like um, issue that you find yourself speaking on behalf of. Mm-hmm. Is this going to be what you do with the rest of your life? Is no. this going to be your thing? No. No. <laughs> I don't want it to be my thing. I feel like I've done my part on it and I'm feeling like I'm winding down on parenthood. You're winding down on parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've talked You've, about it for I, a long time. <laughs> author author of Weird Parenting Wins, Hillary Frank is winding down on parenthood. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's been an amazing thing to report on, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do next, but I did step back from hosting the show because um, because I didn't want to be hosting the show anymore, and I, I wanted to work on the book. But I also, before I did The Longest Shortest Time, I had a beat. I was on the teen beat. Like I was doing, I wrote young adult novels, and I did a lot of reporting on teens, and I'm sort of feeling a pull in that direction again. <laughs> Are you just going to report like along the lifespan of your daughter? <laughs> yeah, no, no. But I feel uncomfortable being like, like the mother that people tell me sometimes like, being a, being a professional mom. Yeah, being a professional mom. People tell me sometimes, and it's, you know, it's meant to be a compliment that like, I have the mother of all mom podcasts, you know, but I just, I don't, I think I want to step out of the mom role a bit. At least professionally. Professionally, yes. <laughs> um, well, before you um, move into like uh, your teenage mm-hmm. uh, dotage, uh, I feel like we should talk about this book for a second. Yeah. Can you give me the can you give me the gist? Can you give me the uh, the spiel here about the book? Yeah. So, you know, when I became a parent, I read a lot of books and I felt like the things that the experts had to say sometimes worked and then a lot of times they didn't. And when they didn't, I felt like a failure and I felt like there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with my kid. Why aren't these things working? And then when I became a more experienced parent a couple years in, I realized that the things that did work for me were things I just invented in moments of desperation, like out of thin air. And I asked the Longest Shortest Time audience if they had things like this. And they did. And the things that came in were hilarious. They were things like, you know, the dad who pig snorted in his baby's ear to get her to stop crying or the couple who in order to create white noise, would take turns charging their electric toothbrushes and conducting the baby to sleep like, from the <laughs> buzzing. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we got to collect these things. And I didn't know what they could be. But eventually I was like, oh, we have enough for a book, I think. And uh, what is your like best case scenario for how people use the book? So I hope that people can use it as a reference manual for like, oh, I'm having, I can't potty train my kid here. Maybe I'll try 
putting blue food coloring in the potty and have my kid pee on it and I'll turn it to goblin pee. <laughs> It'll make it more fun. So like you can find your thing that works, but even more than that, I hope that it'll encourage parents to trust their own intuition. And, you know, if they're feeling like a failure from what the experts are telling them to trust their own creativity. Hey, Hillary, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our sponsors are MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks very much to them, and thanks to Hillary Frank for coming in. Her book is called Weird Parenting Wins. Go check it out. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.